Hey, I'm Tabby and welcome to It Looks Like Courage, the podcast. I realise that I share my life with a bunch of wonderful, courageous people. Not people that necessarily have done some huge courageous act, but just in the way they live their day-to-day lives, they're courageous people. They inspire me and teach me, and I wondered if others would enjoy learning from them too. Each episode will unpack a little of their lives and hopefully help you see where you're already being courageous, but also inspire you to be even more so. So this episode we have the joy of spending time with Susie Smith. We recorded the podcast just a few days before her due date and so it's amazing to let you know that little Marlo Smith has arrived and she is a beauty as expected. Susie is one of those people that as you get to know her you're quite literally stunned by her wisdom and the depth of it. Because of her awesome wisdom we split the podcast into two parts. She daily chooses to overcome fear and to be courageous and I could sit and chat to her for hours. So I hope you enjoy being able to be part of our conversation. So we're in for a treat today with the lovely Susie Smith. And um, last week we were celebrating baby number two coming. You have yeah. a little girl. And um, in a few I, days. In a few days. Yeah. 5th of July. Yeah. So she will already be here when this is played. <gasps> Oh gosh. So maybe we'll have to come back in and announce who she <laughs> is before we um, play the podcast. But last week, so we had your baby shower and I saw you amongst your three sisters. Yeah. And you've got two older sisters and one younger sister. Yeah. And I was thinking both you and I are number three of four. So we must have some sort of middle child connection. Definitely. Um, and apparently there's actually something called a middle child syndrome, which I didn't know oh, about. Yeah. And I was looking it up this morning, and apparently we feel neglected, resentful, we have no drive, <laughs> we're negative, feel that we don't belong, we're the most envious, fairness-obsessed, and least bold of all the birth order children, which I felt was a pretty harsh. That does sound like a harsh list. So then I found another article that was, like, attacking the myth of the, the syndrome. Redeemers, yeah. Yeah, that was saying, actually, we're great team players, we're very trusting, we're good leaders, 52% of US presidents were middle children. Motivated by social causes, we feel less pressure to conform, we're most likely to affect change, we think outside the box, and the list of positive things goes on as well. Yeah. But we're also different because we're number three or four, so we have a, like another middle child yes. in our midst. Yes, that's true. Do you feel like you've conformed to any of the middle child syndrome? <laughs> I always thought it made me really easy going because... Um, I always thought I fitted in really well with yeah. everyone's plans because I, I was just always a huge bunch of people <laughs> and it was always like well I'll just do that then Yeah. and I always thought it um, wasn't great later on in life because I was so used to never really having to come up with a plan for the day because there's always <laughs> so many other people coming up with a plan that when I was left to my own devices I'd, I wouldn't really know what to do with myself <laughs> so yeah I always thought it made me... Um, quite easy going quite going along with the plan um I yeah I never really I think probably I probably didn't really get like I was one of four girls so I had all the hand-me-downs yeah never really had anything that was probably my own but I never <laughs> I never felt sad about that I feel like I always thought that was how it was I didn't know any different that's cool though isn't it yeah so I I kind of liked being a middle child and I thought 
I always thought the hardest was being the oldest. Me too. And going into things unknown. Yeah. By the time that I got to school or something, my older sister would always be like, these are the cool things to wear, or <laughs> don't so go with your trousers like this, like <laughs> I did. And, you know, because my sister followed the uniform, you know, code to a T. Yeah. She was, yeah, and she was the one that said, no, this is probably not Wear your collar outside your jumper. Or That's it. Was. Yeah, I felt like I had someone going in, sort of looking sort of going before me and giving me all the advice so I thought she had it harder to be honest yeah and I remember with being told off my oldest brother it would be like more likely to be his fault yes quicker like what have you done yeah if it was like my other brother and I setting him up yeah he would get into trouble first totally um I did think probably when I was younger because I was in the midst of such big family or big group of people I always thought it made me probably louder yeah. than I needed to be because I needed to, for people to hear me, yeah. I had to be a bit more loud. So definitely there's lots of funny stories about my mum saying my the first her, my first two sisters, she could discipline them with just a look across the room. <laughs> and with me, it was very different. <laughs> you so know, good. I'd be sort of a wild one that had to be contained a bit. So, <laughs> oh yeah. So. Be out of the box, you can tick that little Yeah, exactly. Thing. I think it was a great thing being a middle child. I think you could get away with more. Like, I felt like you went under the radar. Like, the idea that it was a bit neglected, but actually it kind of meant that you kind of sneak off a bit and do a little bit more without necessarily yeah. being... Yeah, rude. and you'd sort of... It's almost like you're not the youngest, so you don't get away with everything because you're yeah. not the baby. But you could definitely... Yeah, you, you could definitely <laughs> sneak off and not be noticed yeah. for quite as long. But yeah, I always, I always liked it. I thought it was quite a nice place to sit in the mix. Yeah quite a safe place to sit really as well like yeah you can be as noticed or as unnoticed as you wanted to be I think being one of four sisters is different though just being one of four of a mix it's like in some ways it looks like you're quite a tribe quite a strong connection but then we also know that girls are kind of hard work at different times so but I always have I've actually always felt that going through is that actually I think one of the things my mum wanted for us but also that you know naturally came across was that we were all each other's best friends and that we were so close in age as well that um we you know my mum had us very quickly after one another so it actually meant that we were dealing with things all at the same time Mm. in terms of like different social pressures or things going on so we had a quite an understanding for each other of what each other was going through and um so I actually did, going through, felt like I really did have a tribe. Like I said, like, two two of my sisters had gone before me at school mm. or something. And and um, and a lot of the time, like my old, the second sister, um, she was quieter than me and I always felt like I would be protective of her. Yeah. Um, so I always felt that we were, we were quite a gang and I still feel that actually. Like, it's so nice actually when we're all together and mm-hmm. I feel like, quite a gang yeah and um so I again it's like I've never had to be in a lot of scenarios where I'm completely on my own going yeah. into something new until yeah. I was an adult so um that was interesting a learning curve for me yeah. and my personality um growing up and coming out of that sort of gang actually mm-hmm. um but yeah I, I did love it yeah I can I imagine it being it. really fun yeah um, and do you still have the same kind of, like, positions in the family now? Like, you're saying your next sister up's a bit more quiet, so you're a bit more protective. Can you see that, like, they've kind of gone into adulthood, or has that changed as you've um, A bit of both, I think. We've definitely 
all changed and matured and done different things and got a new um, uh, sort of understanding for each other in the way that, you know, as you get older, you learn the ways that people communicate differently. Mm-hmm. And um, and obviously when you leave home, people, people do things differently and find their own way of doing things. So I think we've grown. Um, but yeah, my... Um, I mean, the two key ones is, like, my older sister is always the older sister for all of us. <laughs> and she's always sort of, you know, um, leading the charge. And I think we all rely on her as the older sister. Yeah. Um, and my younger sister is totally the youngest sister <laughs> where she's... I think for her, because she's baby and she got away with a lot more, but also she herself is quite... Um, she's feisty and she knows what she thinks mm-hmm. and... Um, she she probably had a stronger sense of self yeah. than all of us from quite early on. And um, we knew that as soon as she came along she, when she was little, she'd boss us all around. Yeah. And you'd think, who's this little one <laughs> with a big voice? Um, but yeah, so I feel like they've remained quite similar. Um, Naomi and I, I think, are middle children. We've, yeah, we've done different things and worked out different ways of being middle child and finding our own identity in the mix yeah. and stuff. But That is really fun. Yeah. So um, we talked about that about age nine or ten, you had like almost like a near-death experience. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Um, and then do you feel like that impacted the way that people viewed you as a child? Um, and how did you view life after that? I think, well, to tell a story... Um, it was, um, yeah, as you said, when I was about nine or ten. And I essentially just had um, a tummy ache and had a long sort of bout of being off um, school and different doctors coming to examine me. And um, they couldn't really find what was wrong with me. And um, essentially what happened was after another doctor's visit, um, they said that it was suspected appendicitis and that I needed to go into hospital sort of right away. And when I got to hospital, um, they had realised that it had ruptured, which um, which then makes things very complicated in that they have to, one, they have to operate straight away, sort of emergency surgery, but also the complications of it rupturing can be quite um, dangerous. Yeah. And obviously, if, that, if we hadn't gone to, into hospital that day, they said I'd probably have lasted another 24 hours um, before it would have been... Um, potentially fatal yeah um and that lent that sort of led into probably a few months of um living in hospital Mm. and recovery and um dealing with different complications that had happened since the surgery and I think being nine or ten and being and it being so um sort of naught to sixty yeah I don't think I I think I felt very protected actually by I only really understood the danger afterwards mm-hmm. um, and even as I got older sort of understanding the scenario because at the time I think um, I didn't really know the danger going into an operation I had the operation and we did spend months in hospital but it felt a bit of a novelty in mm-hmm. that it was really tough because um, what what essentially happened is that a lot of my organs inside had been affected so I was having to sort of relearn to eat and I was I was literally sort of on baby food for a while and working back up to solids and all the rest and different things and we did spend months in hospital but um 
but also my mum sent we were on a children's ward and my mum lived in the ward yeah. with me and and all I can remember in a way I can remember that time being quite almost it was rigorous because I had so many different procedures and so many different injections and drips and things that I can remember being exhausted by it and at one point just refusing more injections yeah. and I think they were giving me like 30 millilitres of water an hour <laughs> because, you know to try and keep me going and stuff like that but I can also remember thinking I had all this one on one time with my mum yeah. and we were all just camped out in the children's ward <laughs> and at the time you're just so young you think oh this is happening yeah. and, and again like you said not too much or not really aware of the dangers yeah. that you've been through and it's only as you grow up that you realise what your parents and what mm-hmm. effect was happening outside the family. So obviously the fact that my mum was living with me yeah. in hospital meant that my dad was at home with the rest of my sisters working and balancing all the ki- um, all the kids with my auntie and looking after them. And, um, and actually the very real fear that they had for my life. Yeah. And, um, and piecing together some of the stories afterwards, so I can remember a friend from my class had said that when my teacher had sort of told the class what was going on mm. where I was at he he told them whilst crying because yeah. he was he was so worried about me and again I felt it was interesting because I felt really held mm. um and I wouldn't have known that language at no. the time um at all and I felt very protected one by the family around me, we were very much part of the church and my dad was one of the leaders and um, and we had people coming and visiting, you know, every few days, bringing yeah. food or bringing things. So um, I can remember that being really special for me, yeah. that we had so many people around and so many people pitching in um, and being part of, really feeling like the benefit of being part yeah. of a community and being part of church. Um, but being so young I don't think I realised the dangers until later on yeah. when people started piecing together those stories around because I yeah. think obviously they're trying to protect me from you know feeling like a burden so they're not telling me quite how crazy it was yeah. at home trying to make that work and um, or quite how dangerous it had been yeah. at different points and so um, at the time it sort of felt you know you almost didn't have time to have a yeah. to know what was going yeah. on you're just trying to get better um, but looking back the, it had quite a lot of, would have been it was such a pressure and also looking back um, not really knowing how close you are to mm. to being um, to that being sort of quite a different situation yeah. and um, for for all of our family yeah. you know? um, so I think it gave me Gave me a perspective on, you know, you're you're a kid, but then you come into that situation. You have to really grow up. You're yeah. you're actually um, the recovery time was quite long. I can remember even when I came home, um, you know, having to to. I think we went to go and visit Arundel Castle, which is near us, or something. And I remember having to just pace up the stairs with my mum, which took yeah. me sort of an hour, and I had. <laughs> my baby food in the bag while everyone was having a picnic and you know it's it yeah it was a strange time but I think um my overwhelming feeling feeling was being really part of that church community 
That's amazing. And almost not being made to, you know, not being made to realise the danger of that, being yeah. very held within that community and within my family. Yeah. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with my mum as well, the way that she um, was with me yeah. through it. I think, like, she would, she never made me feel that it was quite a scary yeah, as it was. situation. So I think she played a huge part in that. Um, but as we said, as a middle child, to have all that tension. I know, that maybe that's, that's why probably... you're not, haven't got the syndrome. You yeah, two months exactly. of being in. Yeah. And so then you went back to school, presumably. Yeah. Quite enjoyed school, didn't you, yeah. to start with? Um, yeah. And then you, we've talked about uh, about 13-ish, you started asking those questions that loads of teenagers ask, like, where do I fit? Kind of a bit, who am I? Yeah. And I just was thinking about that, and I was thinking, like, do you feel like you, you found answers to that, that kind of question, like, where do you fit? Or is that something that you're still occasionally thinking about? Um, I think um, I, I for sure think that as you get older, you get much more comfortable in your own skin, understanding the differences that make up you are yeah. um, unique and actually um, there are positives to you being different to yeah. the person next to you and all the rest. And, and I, think it's, I think it's a life, life journey sort mm-hmm. of thing. And I think um, you embrace. I've embraced that a lot more. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely an overthinker. I'm definitely someone that's, you know, even at that age, at thirteen, yeah. would have been um, sort of scrutinising things that I did later on. Yeah. Um, wanting to fit in. Maybe that's the middle child mm-hmm. in me wanting to fit in with groups. Yeah. And, and um, feel like you belong, and uh, yeah. So I think. I think it's naturally what a lot of people do at the time, yeah. but definitely I'm I'm an over I'm an overthinker. So, but I I certainly feel like much more comfortable in my own skin, yeah. accepting and discovering things about me that's actually a positive thing. Yeah. How that can be utilised to be positive and yeah, um, yeah, and embracing that a lot more. But I think that's obviously through time yeah. not as a 13 year old yes definitely and um, did you have lots of friends at school because you've got talked about your sisters you've got a big tribe yeah then... yeah I think I always felt quite as I said I sort of went in with a heads up from my two sisters mm-hmm. so I always felt like I felt confident and I and um and you know felt quite confident going into school and all that kind of thing um so yeah so I did feel like I um, had a nice time at school, definitely in primary school, definitely in beginning of secondary school. I enjoyed it and felt like yeah. um, it was somewhere where I thrived. Um, so yeah, so I did have quite a nice group of friends. Um, yeah. And then we talked before about developing an eating disorder in your early teens. Yeah. Just um, briefly kind of share how that began um, and a bit of that, sort of how that was for you. Um, I think... As I said, I think being an overthinker um, was a, a part of it, um, the way that I process things. Um, I can remember I, I had a, I essentially had a um, tonsillitis. And I think it was one small thing, you know, where somebody said, um, oh gosh, you lost lots of weight in the week, you know, that... That I had tonsillitis and was probably just not eating very much. And I can remember thinking how good that felt and how 
not just that, but the, the control element mm. of that, of feeling like, well, that's all you have to do to feel better about yourself. Um, that's doable, yeah. you know, that's that's actually quite a powerful thing yeah. and powerful feeling. And I think probably, um, again, that that isn't to say that that whole scenario was based on that one comment, but I think it fed into something that I felt like I couldn't control mm. going into, you know, when you're discovering things about yourself, when you're, um, I was probably quite reactive to things, yeah. and then later on being the overthinker, then absolutely yeah sort of feel awful about what I'd said or done or um been impulsive about and I couldn't really just put the two together you know because yeah. then you just feel awful all the time mm-hmm. so I think there was something quite powerful about feeling like you had control over your uh, over how you felt about yourself yeah and so I think I just started um all I started doing was saying right well I'm not gonna have snacks or something silly mm-hmm. and, and be very controlled over it this same breakfast lunch dinner forever and then gradually started discovering that if at any point that plan changed or if I was in a scenario where I couldn't have my usual Mm. sandwich that I have every day that was very that began to actually be quite scary yeah and you'd almost you'd avoid those sort of um, places at all costs because it threw up all sort of that fear of losing control that fear of Mm -hmm. not being able to dictate your day and uh, and also I did start losing a ton of weight and a lot of people would be saying oh you look good you Mm. look good so it starts off a little bit like um you know you just think this is what everybody does they just do a diet plan and they just and then they lose weight and everybody says oh they look good but the thing that started creeping in was probably when it couldn't go to plan just the fear and loss of control every time that I felt um and then obviously making those meals smaller and smaller and trying to control things much more yeah and was quite real for me just yeah for me the eating disorder was less about oh I don't feel like I look very nice I'll try and make it myself feel better it was more about this power of control yeah um, over a situation and I think then obviously growing up as a in a Christian household and a Christian environment and church um, after after a while when I started to, when it started to sort of get really bad you you realize quite how you think that you can trust nobody else's opinion yeah. anymore it loses any sort of um uh, if somebody says, now you've done well, you've lost enough mm. weight now, you think, oh, um, you know, you feel attacked actually that someone's yeah. making comments on how you look. Yeah. And so you think you're the only true voice in your head. Mm-hmm. You lose all confidence in anyone telling you anything because yeah. you said, oh, well, you said I looked good when yeah. I was much bigger. Yeah. So I can't trust anything you say. So it's um, really isolating, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. People become people become enemies to you without obviously meaning to at all you just you're in conflict with them all the time because you just feel like no one's being truthful Mm -hmm. and the only person that's being truthful to yourself is you Mm. and you can see you've got eyes this you're fine you're not losing too much weight and actually um like i said the fear of losing control is much more powerful than yeah you know you can't see you can't you know you could probably see that you were very skinny but 
it's becomes so much more yeah. than that it becomes just they're, they're taking away my control yeah if they're you know as soon as they start challenging me on food or stressing me out around dinner time yeah. you know i was a part of the big family so they started to you and know obviously they yeah. notice if my um you know if my like meals were going down or if i was being secretive mm. um they would to a certain extent and and if they challenged me on it in that moment, it would just be almost like a panic attack. Yeah. It would be like, you're trying to take this away from me, yeah. and so then you've become an enemy for me. Mm. So there's no there's no reasoning really with that mindset because you isolate yourself, yeah. you think no one's being honest with you, you then make them your enemies yeah. because they're trying to essentially rob that control from you. So it's, it's huge, isn't it? It's a huge, like... Um like private conversation yes. that you're having yeah but you said that your mum started writing you notes is that right yes and that almost so in the you. midst of that it became quite apparent that if someone was going to sort of challenge me or chat to me it couldn't be anywhere around food okay because um that was obviously a scary time and full of emotions yeah. so if anybody sort of brought up the conversation while you're having dinner <laughs> you know it would yeah. be the worst so and to be honest, if anybody brought up the conversation, it mm. was it was always going to end in um, in a conflict, basically, of feeling like that person's mm. trying to take something away from you. So, in order to combat that, actually, I think she just started to write letters to me um, instead of you know talking to me, mm. and and they wouldn't they wouldn't be letters that would be talking about my eating disorder. They'd be scriptures. There'd be um, verses, there'd be thoughts for a day that she'd read in a in her sort of Bible that day. Or, um, yeah, it would be encouragement, basically, just sort of trying to lay a bit of grounding. Because I think the, re- the thing is, with eating disorders, is you lose reality. Mm. You only think you are the only reality. Yeah. You are the only person speaking truth to yourself. Yeah. Everybody else is lying. Yes. Everybody else is trying to get you to be well. And yeah. what does that mean? And and yeah. actually, they're just taking away the one thing that's making yeah. me feel in control. And um, so, I, looking back, certainly felt like I um, recognised that there were lots of conflicting voices in my mm. head. Um, some of which my own. I think there's definitely a spiritual element yeah. to some of it. Um, where I felt like um, the devil had just sort of locked onto something yeah. there and found um, found a route in. And so what was quite powerful about my mum doing that, one was it was in a way that was not com- yeah. conflicting or yeah. confronting, but it was, it was balancing out the lies that mm. I was telling myself with truth. Yeah. And without being too, like she wasn't, here is a verse that yeah. talks about eating disorders. Yeah. It was trying to balance out the truth and trying to lay a bit more of yeah. a foundation. And just reminding you, this is who you are. Nothing That's it. in that sense has changed. Yeah. Depending on the circumstances, this is who you are. Yeah. This is truth. Exactly. And I think in that way, making me feel like she is on my side, mm. um, you know, and we didn't have to talk about it and we didn't have no. to say what did you think about my last yeah. day or something? But it gave me time to um, to look at those things. And I think actually that came around more around when I was recovering 
um, although she was she would send me those and and she'd been doing that you know she'd write us little notes all our lives and yeah. she's she's great with words and um, that's really a gift of hers but um, I think that became apparent when she would also she could see as I was saying as an over overthinker after dinner time when I was trying to recover. Mm. Um, if I'd sort of challenged myself with one extra piece of bread or something, you know, yeah. something just which sounds ridiculous to everybody else in the world. You know, an hour later, I'd find myself spiralling a bit mm. because I'd feel like out of control. Out of control. I don't know how to. So she would just take me out for a drive, and we'd just drive around for maybe an hour until that sort of panic had passed. Yeah. And again, it wasn't wasn't like we were going out to have a big chat but she could see that I couldn't stay and panic and yeah. just get out of my head for it's a bit amazing. and um and I think you know I I think I was ready to be I started to notice obviously that this was getting out of control mm. and I started to notice that people around me were panicking yeah. about me and I started to notice actually I started to it was quite painful to be that yeah. skinny yeah. in a lot of ways, like physically. Yeah. There were a lot of things that were happening on body that were sort of, um, you know, periods of stopping and yeah. um, it's, it's, it's painful. It's really painful to be yeah. that skinny, actually. So um, there was lots of things that you're noticing that aren't quite right. Yeah. But before you realise that it's a problem, you think, well, it's now this whole thing about control. Yeah. It's like I'm... I'm stuck here now because although I can see maybe that some people are sort of saying maybe have a point I like if this was nothing to do with food if I could just yeah. magic and feel better I would but it's that you are taking away yeah. something that I'm holding really close to yeah. and associating with all my positive feelings yeah. and the yeah. way that I get through a day and that sort of thing but I felt that there were you know, I think looking back, there must have been the power of prayer yeah. and things where I was ready to feel like I wanted to get better. Yeah. Really. And um, it was in my recovery that mum was sort of writing those letters and taking me out for drives. And I went and got counselling, yeah. which I think was helpful because, again, so much of it is in your head. Yeah. And not being able to hear truth from mm-hmm. lies and yeah. all that kind of thing. So it was powerful to be able to speak that out yeah. to somebody that was um you know not involved yeah not in affected by life. what exactly you could throw out some real yeah crazy ones and you know you hope that <laughs> doesn't go worse. <laughs> doesn't go worse exactly so i i thought that was really good but i learned actually the power of speaking some of those things out and the way that they lose their power yeah. when it's said out loud mm-hmm. and um and that was really powerful for me because I think I would process things internally much yeah. more. I think, as we said a million times, I'd overthink things, I'd go down in little spirals. So mm. I think that became quite a weapon for me going forward in learning the power of just need to say it out loud yeah. so that you can hear it and, and loses power. And, loses power and, and balancing that against the truth of mm. the word and coming from scripture and um, learning to understand the voice of God mm. um, was quite key for me in recovery because 
I'd felt like I got very used to listening to essentially my own voice, but also felt like there had been, um, you know, the devil had took hold in a lot of my thought yeah. processes. And so I felt that there was quite a conflict of that and I needed to recognise God's voice again mm. to be able to know what was... what was Truth. Yeah, truth, exactly. And um, I, and I think along the way I couldn't recognise... I couldn't differentiate and recognise what was good and what was mm. bad for a while. And so I needed to realign and relearn mm. the voice of God to be able to know what wasn't. Yeah. And... Um, and so that was quite key. So I think, you know, at the time I'd be reading my Bible every day just to sort of... It would be a really... It was a really close time with God, actually, because there'd be times where I'd have... Read something in the morning that really just... Something would happen in the day that it would be so key to. Yeah. Felt really like you were reading scriptures for that moment. Mm. Um, you know, and so often you can feel like you're reading the Bible and it takes a while to... Uh, you know find those moments where it really speaks into your life but it felt like daily there were things that were god was bringing out so so in a so the recovery felt really quite an intensive time with god really um what other advice sorry like so that's amazing advice isn't it in somebody else maybe in their teens or wherever actually struggling with eating disorder maybe struggling with people really misunderstanding the core of yeah. it as well people often just think it's about yeah. food and weight what like you talked about like you wanted it to turn around you realized that it actually wasn't the, the best thing for you yeah what, what would be some of your advice like sort of simple things just to yeah for, for anyone in that place well I think um I know that there are different triggers and different motivations and different mm. different powers in in having an eating disorder so for me the biggest thing was having control I think that's a large part of it but I know that there are other people that you know there are different triggers yeah um but for me I think I realized the danger of where I was going Mm. um and I I think I saw the panic in other people around me um quite quickly and although at first that felt like they're against me they don't want me to be happy Mm. They don't want me to have this control that I found and the yeah. one thing that makes me feel like I can handle life. Yeah. Um, I, you know, when it when I was getting really quite unwell, I saw people sort of panicking, yeah. not really knowing what to do. And I think for me, the love of people around me mm. probably triggered something in me that, for, as in I didn't like seeing my sisters panic like yeah. that. I saw, you know, we we went on a youth retreat and they were very good at not saying too much to me because they yeah. realised that it ended up in conflict. But I can remember one particular evening meal, my sister just desperately trying to get me to put the sandwich mm. on your plate sort of thing. And she'd never said anything before yeah. and that's my sister Naomi, my second sister, and she would be quieter about these things. And the fact that she was panicking yeah, made me feel a little bit like, okay, I can see that, you know, people around me are now actually getting concerned. They're not sort of, oh, she's lost a lot of weight. So I think that helped me see Mm. things in perspective a bit. Um, Seeing people that aren't panickers panic. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That was quite crucial. And I think I, although I felt like, oh, it's control and it's making me feel like I can handle things. I quickly was learning that it was 
flipping on me. Yeah. And it became not me controlling it, but it controlling me. Yeah. And um, and running into those scenarios where you think, oh, I'm just dieting. Yeah. I'm just looking after what I, you know, put in my body, whatever. You get to a scenario and you feel so panicked. Mm. And so sort of, I need to get out of here. I need to isolate myself. I can't be around mm. people. I can't be in the scenario. But you begin to realise that it's actually really controlling you. Yeah. And... Oh, you know, after a while, it does make you miserable. Yeah, <laughs> you feel ill. One of the, you know, one of the things is you feel terribly ill because you are you know in, in starvation mode and your body aches and hurts yeah. and all the rest. So you don't feel very well. You don't look very well. You are panicking. Yeah, and um, so you start to realise actually yeah. making me happy. We're not actually you know. <laughs> yeah. Um getting to a better place here and it's gone out of control so I think that I started realizing that that was a bit of a turnaround Mm. and I think I can only think that you can only really decide to get better on your own there Mm. is no way that even if with all the goodwill of my family that they turned me around and made me better um because the eating bit is like a treatment yeah like it's not really the recovery no it's not the reco- well done. You've eaten something more today. That's yeah. that's not the recovery. The co- recovery is, for me, was mentally. Yeah. And you know, and gave me. And if I rec- could recover a little bit mentally and get my head back in a mm. better place, I could face the treatment yeah. of having something to eat yeah. or the rest. So um, there's no way that you can get better without deciding that mm. you're going to get better. And I think they say that of all addicts, yeah. I think it becomes a little bit of addiction. Yeah. So, um, once you, I think you can only come to that point when you come to that point. Yeah. And I don't think anyone force you into getting no. better. Once you decide that you want to get better, I think as we said, like counselling is huge. I think obviously for me, a huge part of it was faith mm. and learning between lies and truth. Yeah. And learning. Um, and spending time in scripture again, yeah, some of those things that really speak about what God made you to be, how He made you, all the positives of you yeah. being you. Um, so once you're on recovery, there's so much, and obviously having a mum like mine, which yeah. take me out of my thoughts for an evening or mm. write to me, that kind of thing was really useful. But I think I don't know how you come to the point where you want to turn around. Until you want, you want to, to turn around. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think anyone can make you do anything else. That is, I think that's amazing, though, that, that kind of reflection of, of that, like the eating being the treatment, that's not going to actually be part yeah. of the recovery, in a yeah. sense, unless you've made that decision. And I think all of that is so helpful. Such, yeah, really. And I don't think I can put, put the fact that I wanted to recover down to, I just had a strength yeah. of mind to turn yeah. it around. I think it must have been the power of people praying for me. Yeah. It must have been the power of God wanting healing yeah. for me. It must have been so many things intertwined which yeah. made me be able to get the perspective yeah. to be able to say this has gone too far yeah. because yeah. there's lots of times that people go down that road and lose control and they know it's overtaken them mm. but they can't get back. And yeah. I think, honestly, for me, I think I was being carried by prayers that yeah. I didn't know were being prayed and 
you know, and that caused me to be able to have the perspective yeah. that this wasn't quite right. Yeah. But I don't think it's just my sort of strength of mind that got me out of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, I'll, yeah, it was yeah. sort of being carried on the prayers of other people. Such a good encouragement to be one of those prayers, isn't yes. it? To be someone that prays quietly exactly. and silently. Um, and that is, and you know, talking about courage, that is courage. Yeah. Because all you want to do is shake someone and yeah. get them to eat and get them to yeah. to realise that it's all going wrong and it's going yeah. down the wrong. And, and it took courage from my family not to panic like that mm. in front of me. You know, we had lots of moments where they would, it would all go to pot and it would be yeah. quite a conflict. But after a while they started to realise in those moments that's not, mm. that's not, getting anywhere yeah. so it took courage for them to almost be still step back yeah and trust god and pray and you know and find you know not to be inactive yeah find ways in which to yeah. communicate with me but it was a yeah it took a lot of bravery not to just want to shake me for, like force things yeah, yeah exactly that's amazing that's the end of part one as i said susie is amazing isn't she i hope you've enjoyed the first part of the episode and the second part will be coming right up